Hello and welcome back to the CIO Show. I'm David Binning, Associate Editor CIO. In today's more treacherous cybersecurity environment, organizations with the biggest targets on their heads can't afford not to employ a dedicated data security expert, such as a Chief Information Security Officer, CISO, or similar title, not only to keep the organization safe from malicious actors and complacent staff, but also to ensure adherence to the latest laws, regulations, and compliance requirements around the handling of data. Yet even those that do aren't necessarily achieving the protections they should because of entrenched cultural issues, especially in terms of how boards think about and manage risk. Many executives remain focused on financial risk, understandably, and don't fully appreciate the cyber variety until a major incident slaps everyone in the face. And then suddenly spending on cyber has a more obvious ROI. Boards also tend to think that cyber should be part of a CIO's job. Many CIOs will tell you this. This is especially the case in smaller organizations that wouldn't normally budget for a CISO as well. But even when they do, how clear is it who's responsible for what and reporting to whom? Should CISOs operate as independent threat directors or operate within IT? All very important questions as the stakes for getting cybersecurity right continue to rise. Joining me now are Anna Leibel, who's a former CIO with Unisuper, someone who's had more than 30 years experience in, in digital leadership and transformation in Australia, deep experience within the healthcare sector and the uh, director of a recently formed uh, consultancy, The Secure Board, and, and co-author of the recently published book by the same name, Anna, welcome to the CIO Show. Thanks, David. Also, Simon Pip, who's the Vice President, Trust, Security and Blockchain Research with IDC APAC. Simon, welcome to you as well. Thank you very much. Now, Anna, you and I were speaking recently about this, this book that you've, uh, you've co-authored. Um, extremely timely yet also with some very worrying observations in terms of board awareness of cyber, not just board awareness of cyber, but also CIO's awareness of cyber and how to bridge this, this chasm, this communications gap that seems to be existing between the two. David, Claire and I undertook a lot of research uh, before we actually started writing the book. So we interviewed board members, chief executives, CIOs and security leaders. Yes. and actually found that um, I suppose there's a gap in between from a communication perspective and a knowledge perspective mm -hmm. from the security leader up to the board. And we believe that they need to meet in the middle. So security leaders often communicate in quite technical terms um, without a lot of clarity around what the board actually needs to know to be able to do their job. Um, and the board find the technical communication extremely hard to understand, which is um, understandable. Um, and so we really wrote the book to help build board's confidence around cybersecurity. And we don't talk in technical terms in the book, but we also do coaching and run masterclasses around helping security leaders and CIOs, and also work with clients one-on-one -on -one to actually help them improve their communications to the board. Now, uh, I apologize to Claire, we, we haven't, what's her full name, sorry? Claire Pales. Claire Pales. And Simon, you, you and I were talking about the fact that not only are boards not fluent in the language of, of, cyber, of, of IT and digital, let alone cyber, but there's this issue we have whereby a lot of CIOs are kind of wary of what they would divulge to, to boards. And you, you, you use the analogy of, um, of cupboards that they would rather not have open. So for instance, you used the example of a new recruit joining a tech team and being told, hey, um, don't, don't look over there. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. 
the, the, the challenges for like the, the CIO is they're going to run all of IT technology. There are certain shortcuts during implementation which of many projects which make a lot of sense at the time, but could at later point in time become a cyber risk. So there are, I've come across over the years, many, many examples of known risk inside of an environment that the CIO knew about or someone on the team knew about, yeah. but there is nobody in the security team who's looking for those problems. Yes. Um, and it's very tough to then turn around and say, we did something some years ago that we now need to spend money to fix. Yeah. So there are a lot of skeletons in cupboards, yes. What, what are your thoughts on, on, on that, Adam, in, in terms of known, known knowns that aren't being discussed, perhaps? Did I get my Donald Rumsfeldism right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I completely agree with what Simon shared. I suppose that I, um, I built a different type of relationship with the board at Unisuper where I was um, always transparent around what was going on. I always make sure if I go to the board and share with them something that's not going well, I make sure that I've actually got a way that I'm going to solve it as well. Mm. Um, but for me, transparency built trust and the board then never had to wonder if something wasn't going well because they knew that I would tell them if it wasn't. Mm. Um, and then as a board member, I sit on two boards today, I worry if the executive and not just the IT executive, but if the executive is always sharing good news because right. I think that... Um, Business is hard and things don't always go well. And as leaders, it's actually what we do when things don't go well that people remember. Yeah. Um, and that's our mark as a leader versus things always going well. Um, and Simon, I've had other experiences where I've had other business executives actually accept risk, which is actually technology risk, which has put more risk into the business from a cyber perspective, even though ultimately I'd be the one that was accountable for it if something went wrong. Sure. No, I had a recent experience talking to uh, an organization about the, the issue that happened with SolarWinds. And uh, I, I'm sure most CISOs and security guys know about SolarWinds today, but prior to December, they had probably no idea that they were in the environment. Yeah. Uh, but this comment from a, a CISO was, um, my job is not to decide whether SolarWinds is good in or not. That's the network operation team have already made that choice. My job is now to make sure it is secure. So that's a tough position to be in, especially if there aren't, isn't a CISO and it's the CIO making those calls as well. And Simon, for me, it's all down to the risk around reputation, regulatory compliance, and also um, financial um, implications of a breach. Mm. Um, and that's why the whole business should care about it, including the board, not just the um, have the accountability with the CIO or the security leader. It, it seems to me that there's a, there's a deep cultural problem as well and um, Simon as you and I were discussing recently one of the difficulties that boards have is that they view risk in terms of within a, they view it through a financial prism and 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 thinking about risk outside of that is is challenging for them because as and as as you noted there's not really an obvious ROI on cyber security until you have a major catastrophe Totally, totally. I mean, <clears throat> ultimately, financial risk is, is how everything surfaces itself. But uh, we did a study in 2017 across the, the entire region, including Australia and New Zealand, uh, around cybersecurity maturity. And you know, everybody had tools, everybody had processes, some people had resources, some people had CEO support, some people had funding. Uh, but nobody had what we defined as quality risk management controls. They had financial risk management controls, absolutely. Where do I invest to grow the business, et cetera? But if you started talking to them about brand risk or cyber risk, it was a very much an unknown commodity. 
And we realized over the years that, that this is one of those areas, this is how the IT security leads are gonna be able to change the conversation to talk to the board, is taking all those key risk indicators that emerge from all the information they have, but translating it into something that the financial risk team understands. Um, so we've tried at IDC to come up with, first off, how do you define what those key risk indicators are? And they're very unique to a specific organization, the, the size of the organization, the number of connections, devices, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then move that to once you understand and, and can put a number, financial number on that, mm. then from a future investment perspective in cybersecurity, it's about risk reduced per dollar spent. Yeah. Now, those are conversations we think the board would understand, but to get there is hugely complicated and really not something I think CIOs are, are particularly equipped to deal with. It's more you know, risk management, financial management uh, approach. And getting them interested in it, it seems to be the biggest challenge in the field. So every time we spend a dollar on some kind of security technology, we can talk about how we're reducing the number, the quality, the value of the risks that the organization is facing. I think it's turning everything in the cybersecurity world into a value that the board can go, either the value needs to go up or down depending on the current market. That's how they can respond. Otherwise, you know, telling it mean time to discovery and mean time to a, a remediation, this is like, yeah. don't even understand what that means. Mm. Simon, I've also observed that um, unlike other risks, the cyber risk just keeps changing. And so um, a CIO or security leader can develop a strategy, take it to the board, get the endorsement and the funding, have the measures in place to make sure the return on investment is clear. But regardless of the investment, the risk keeps changing. So um, the strategy might need to be revisited further investment might be required and I find that um, whether it's a chief executive or the board sometimes that's really hard to get their head around because unlike other risk it's but we've spent money on that it should be fixed by now. <laughs> no, I'm sure I'm sure and that goes back to what we uh, talked about earlier like the, the ROI and IT security investments I mean any other software or hardware a solution investment has ultimately a return on investment whereas I heard of uh, used to say that IT security investments were like insurance Mm. And uh, I was in Korea, South Korea, obviously, and uh, somebody uh -huh. from the insurance industry there said, no, no, it's not like insurance, because with insurance, there's a payout. This is more akin to military spending. If you don't invest in cybersecurity, you will get overrun by the bad guys. But taking that concept to the board and CEO, we're going to do some military, unless you're in that industry, it makes no sense. So you've got to think of a different conversation. But I, I agree, Anna. I mean, the whole dynamic of cybersecurity has changed so much. And, you know, from when I was installing firewalls in the 90s, it was like yeah. just to protect the perimeter, which is all gone. Now it, it's a very agile environment. You, it changes daily, it changes hourly. So you can't decide our strategy today will be the one we'll follow for the next five years because who knows what new way of breaking in the bad guys are going to discover. So that's got to be catered for, and that's uh, not the easiest thing to do. Well, well, accepting that, Simon, I mean, do, do you guys think that, that any organizer, any organization of any sort of size and that's from medium size to to enterprise let's let's say is is being somewhat negligent if they don't have a dedicated size because otherwise the burden on cios to to to, to bring this level of vigilance is just unrealistic really isn't it yeah actually this is a good question to put to anna sorry i know i'm going to pose a question so here at idc we have this belief that the cio and the and the it operations team are uh, obviously, they run all of IT operations, but for an IT security leader, chief information security officer, and the threat hunter team mm. should not be part of that organization for the reasons we said at the very beginning. So if you've got the CISO, first off, 
they're looking at, at it from a risk perspective, we're not necessarily a technology perspective. You've got threat hunters in the organization or contracted elsewhere who are looking for problems inside the organization, looking for known knowns and unknown unknowns. <laughs> and many of those will be implemented by the IT organization. So by separating the two, you create a, an apolitical environment that is only looking for risk. And when they find a risk, they pass it back to the operations team and say, please fix that. And there's no, you did this, this is a crazy idea. But having the CIO manage the IT security team just put so much pressure on CIOs. Now you've been in both roles, so I'm curious to your perspective on that, whether we're barking up the wrong tree there. It's, it's an ongoing um, conversation around who the security leader should actually report into. And I think there's pros and cons, just like any, any other role, like a CIO reporting into a CFO or COO. Um, so I personally think a CIO should sit on the executive today, given um, the dependence of every business on IT. For me, you'd get different outcomes. If you had a security leader reporting into the chief risk officer, obviously you'd be looking through a compliance and risk lens, not a bad thing, but I also think being a security leader, a, a big part of that is actually being strategic. So it's not just about being compliant. If you're reporting into the CFO, obviously there's always that concern that we'd be counting the dollars as opposed to really thinking more broadly around the risk to the business. And some people say that them reporting to the CIO means that the CIO is checking their own homework. Yeah. So my mm -hmm. philosophy on that is then I think you've got the wrong CIO. Um, and um, to, at UniSuper, it worked really, really well because I had the accountability for the network team and the infrastructure team, the software development team, everything at UniSuper was in-house, which was just awesome and quite unusual nowadays. So that worked really well because it's that broader lens around cyber risk. It is the patching of your systems and the currency of your old legacy things. Not everything can go to the cloud yet. Yeah. So for me as a leader, I felt comfortable having full accountability for cyber because I had the teams reporting into me that needed to also contribute to mitigating that risk. We enable any organisation to use any technology. We help all companies become technology companies, protecting the identity of both workforces and customers. Connecting the right people to the right technology at the right time. Okta, one trusted platform to secure every identity in your organisation. And Anna, do you think the majority of boards are still making assumptions about their CIOs, assuming that the CIOs would just take care of cyber and that perhaps many CIOs are scared to challenge that assumption and just go along with the status quo with neither party really fully appreciating the, the dangers of not properly communicating who's responsible for what? Mm, I think that at the moment, the um, some assumptions around what a CIO is actually able to do from a skills perspective and capacity is probably more um, assumptions being made more at an executive level. Yeah. Um, I think the board still looks to the CIO to be accountable and often the CIO is a mouthpiece, if you like, so reports on behalf of cyber. I think that most CIOs have been quite comfortable with their remit. If we've grown up and had a career that's gone for, you know, at least more than a decade, then we've definitely worked in multiple IT domains. We don't get to the CIO role not having worked across more than a few. The difference is that cyber is quite new still. And four or five years ago, it wasn't unusual to find the cyber team buried down within the infrastructure, um, the structure of the infrastructure team within, within an organisation. And so for me, it's okay to have that expectation of the CIO, but I think that organisations need to be explicit 
about that when they're actually in market at hiring in new CIOs. I still look at job descriptions today and they don't mention, really mention cyber. Right. And I do think that organisations need to then prioritise what they're looking for. So you can't have everything. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's really around you either hire in a security leader and, and help them grow into that business and possibly take on broader responsibilities across IT, or you actually also develop then as a CIO. And that's a really good example. That's something that I did at Unisuper. That was the first time that I'd had security reporting into me. I mm. love learning. So naturally I like going out and finding out about different topics. And um, VJ joined the security team at, at Unisuper to lead that. So I also spent a lot of time with him. Mm. And that was my opportunity to really understand cyber in more detail. Um, we did talk before about whether every organisation needs a security leader and whether that needs to be the CIO. I think some organisations, particularly smaller ones, often rely on a partner, so a third party to manage their IT systems. Um, Claire and I both advocate for someone within the organisation still having accountability for security. Um, it's really imperative that you have someone within the business that has IP around your systems and you need someone internal that is actually accountable for that risk. You can't outsource the risk. Yeah. Back to what you were mentioning, Simon, this idea of, of threat hunters being operating independently of the, of the core tech team. I think that's a reasonably controversial for most of our listeners. Okay, well, that's good then, because I it think we've very much proven that everything we're doing in cybersecurity date isn't working particularly well, right? So yeah. is it time to do something different? I mean, one of the, you know, the conversations we used to have a couple of years ago was, uh, you know, who's, who's trying to get 100% secure? And, and people would actually put their hands up. It's like, no, 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 that's a complete unicorn. Um, so you've really got to think, what is it you're trying to do? You're simply trying to identify and then reduce risk. So, you know, I think the idea of having, and, you know, having threat hunters, uh, you can go and find, uh, you know, external organizations that will do pen testing. Um, that's a scary thing to do, by the way. Have you done that, Anna? It's like, really? We had that much? But, it, you know, if we don't know, I mean, so I have colleagues and friends in the, in the industry and large systems integrators that focus on security. They say the first thing they do before they embark on an engagement with a client is they want an audit. No, they want to do an audit of the systems. They don't want to see the audit that the CIO has because they know the CIO is see, only seeing 60 to 70% of the devices connected. Yeah. Think about that. If you don't know what you're trying to protect, how can you possibly protect it? Mm. Now, in one study, we said, how often do you sweep your systems looking at the size of the organization and looking for embedded malware? Because we know from, say, Mandian a couple of years ago said the average dwell time in Asia, in the world was 147 days, but Asia Pacific was 512. So malware is sitting, and it's changed, by the way, but it was, you know, it's sitting on the network for more than a year before people are even aware of. Um, surprising how many organizations do not have the capacity to do sweeps more than annually. Now, so to, to Anna's comment about how the skills have changed, when I, I first installed firewalls in the 90s, it was a network job, right? You were a network guy doing security. Today, it's data analytics. We need data scientists to look at security. But that's not going to happen because if you can afford a data scientist, you're going to invest on make more money analytics before you're going to do cyber analytics, right? So all these things have to change. But if you're not constantly trying to understand how your dynamic environment is changing, what are new risks are being added? And you know, for those of us who are in lockdown and working from home, that's happening on an hour by hour basis. Your annual sweep is like, well, I lock the door once a year before I go out of the house. The rest yeah. of the year, it's wide open. That should be fine for security, right? Yeah, it, it, it's interesting, Simon, you making that point about 
cybersecurity these days being far more about software than about communications and networks. I, I know, sure. I mean, you've got to look at everything. I mean, we as we move to the multi-hybrid cloud as, a, as an architecture, the requirement for us to look at that infrastructure, you know, mm -hmm. are we patch current, are we patch ready, is no longer an issue for, for if we're on the cloud. Obviously, you've got your stuff that you do have to make sure is patch current, and you'll say, well, we can't do that. Okay, you can't. So what are you doing instead to secure that stuff that you know is uh, uh, vulnerable? Um, so the, as you move to the cloud, it, it changes, the control points change, and we've identified uh, IDC, smarter minds than I have said, that identity, data, application, and devices. If you can manage and secure the integrity of those four areas, then does it matter what's on the network anymore? Uh, and let me give you an example of that. I mean, if you're operating in, uh, say, markets of uh, Hong Kong um, or Taiwan, you will be familiar with uh, threat actors on your network all of the time that you can't really remove because the implications of removing are, are more than the, they're not doing anything, they're just observing. Mm. Won't point to who's doing what, mm. um, but they're observing high value net worth individuals from their markets. Um, and you know, I think uh, some of the large international banks have said, yeah, we just have to live with it. We monitor them 24 seven, 365, to make sure they're only monitoring these high value accounts. If they do anything else, then you've got to cut them off somehow. But uh, if you were to cut them off immediately, you'd lose all your banking licenses to move forward. So, so what's on the network is not so important as to what's happening to the data, yeah. which is what the bad guys are after. The identities, are these legitimate identities all of the time consistently connecting? Um, and are those applications that you have on there doing the right things or are they spinning up uh, uh, anomalous processes that uh, shouldn't be happening? Yeah. Um, and then the device part, because we're all working remotely and the, the world of IoT is bringing millions of new potential uh, uh, threat vectors to the organization. Simon, what you've just mentioned, though, for me, is, uh, links back to the discussion we had earlier about return on investment. Yeah. And often the return on investment, so everything you just described, you could categorize as near misses. Yeah. That's the return on investment. Mm. Yeah. That's hard to measure and hard to quantify to the chief executive or to the board. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to quantify how valuable it is having your seatbelt unless you actually have, a, have an accident. And look, I, you know, we've all read and also written countless, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of words over the last several years about how organisations need to be taking cyber more seriously. This needs to be elevated to a board level discussion that kind of um, urgency has obviously uh, accelerated throughout COVID. Anna, do you think boards are, are listening yet? And, and, and if they're not, is that sort of, is it, are, we, are we sort of dealing with a degree perhaps of tone deafness still at the board level, even though we've had numerous examples of CEOs having to fall on their swords following cyber events in the last several years, something that would never have happened 20 years ago? I definitely think that COVID has accelerated the focus of everything to do with IT for the board. Mm. Um, so whether it's digital or, or data or cyber or um, any exposures around legacy systems now have the attention of chief executives and boards in a way that they didn't prior to COVID. Uh, it's really interesting that locally, I think that regulators and even the government are making the decisions on the behalf of the boards. So for APRA regulated uh, organisations, the board made the decision for them through their standard called CPS 234, which is the information security standard where they actually said that boards needed to understand the risks around information security in detail. 
Um, and now we're looking at the critical infrastructure bill, which is still being discussed and has not yet been finalised, but that will actually see board directors for those um, companies within those industries actually held accountable for cyber. What's, what's the awareness, do you think, amongst boards of, of this imminent piece of legislation? Because this is no small thing. It's getting a lot of exposure in the media. Uh, so we're finding that um, there's some of our clients that we would consider early adopters. So even though it hasn't been finalised yet, they already have plans underway in, yeah. in relation to how they can actually um, confirm or, or be very comfortable that they will be compliant within the required timeframes. Um, I think the change for some organisations is going to be significant. And what, what sectors do you think are finding this most challenging, in particular this, this, with regard to the conversation between CIOs and the executives about the responsibility for cyber? And do you think there are particular industries where this is a particularly problematic miscommunication? David, for me, it's not industry specific. I think it would be more of a theme that I'm seeing in the size of the organisation. I think the smaller the organisation, um, they don't have the funding or the headcount available to them to actually have a CIO and a security leader. Yeah. And so there's the expectation that the, the CIO, and sometimes it's not even a CIO, it might be an IT manager. Um, that they will actually have the skills and experience as an IT manager to look after all aspects of IT, probably manage quite large, complex third-party relationships as well, if it's a small IT shop internally, um, but also look after security. What's expected of small, small businesses is absolutely challenging. I mean, they yeah. have exactly the same cybersecurity challenges as you know, massive organisations and a, a, a tenth of the resources. It's... Uh, it's a huge challenge for them. Um, fortunately, uh, we just did some recent research, global research on ransomware, on who suffered ransomware attacks and who hasn't. Uh, fortunately, I say, it's the larger organizations that globally have been targeted rather than the smaller ones. But you have to understand the nature of ransomware attacks has changed recently. I mean, uh, a few years ago, it was a shotgun blast and anybody could get it. You heard the story of you know, the poor Nigerian person had to pay a dollar to get their laptop open, but it, it was a dollar to them, but it was billions to the, uh, the ransomware guy. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and, and in your market, we, uh, we understand that uh, large organizations over the last 12 months, 24% of large organizations in Australia have been hit by ransomware, as opposed to 14% in New Zealand. So whether that's just because they're further away, I don't know. Um, but, uh, and, and this has resulted in some organizations spending a week being unable to do anything. Um, I mean, some have managed to get away with it, but for many, it's been you know, at least three days. So, I mean, Anna, in, in the conversation about monetizing cybersecurity for uh, the board, I've talked to organizations about, you know, you have a backup data center. You've done your business continuity disaster recovery planning and came up with a financial model for that. With something like ransomware and today's requirement for digital business being so important, mm. would that mathematics that that financial calculation not be relevant in this case these days it's very relevant um simon and i think the conversation that the the appropriate conversation for the board and the chief executive to be having is actually how long it would take them to recover their systems after a ransomware right. now the other thing that's interesting is most people think a ransomware is quick so what they think is that the ransomware there's a ransom ask you either pay or, or not. Yeah. It sounds like that all happens within 24 hours. Yeah. And then you start recovering your systems. What we're finding is they go on much longer. Um, sometimes there's decisions made to pay a ransomware and they get hit again because they've just proved that they will pay. 
Other times there's been ransoms that have not been paid and they get hit again. So often there's actually not even the opportunity to start recovering systems for weeks. And then the recovery efforts are actually into the weeks and into the months. And so what businesses really need to consider, and this is the board piece with the CEO, how long can you operate your business if you have to go back to pen and paper with your systems being shut down and really thinking through the implications for your employees, your customers, your suppliers, all of the relationships that you have, and then how you manage that with your customers within that time can really go a long way around whether you build and retain trust in your customer base or whether you actually damage it. I was doing some research recently on on ransomware and and there's some astonishing, well, most of the statistics are alarming, but particularly confronting one was the fact that organisations are finding that once the threat hunt, the threat, they'll have a successful threat um, hunting expedition. Um, those, those threats will be dealt with. But then some hackers are able to reform themselves or re, you know, re-bolster their arsenals within minutes and get back in again. I, I wonder whether... And many of the executives, the CEOs that you deal with have an understanding of that level of sophistication and speed. Uh, David, I think that's the opportunity to learn from others. Yeah. And one thing that we don't do often is have organisations share the detail around what actually happens with a ransomware. And I'd like to um, pay credit to ANU who have been extremely transparent around what happened um, with their cyber attack. And that actually shows the number of times that their systems were hit in a really short period of time. Also, when they were actually kicked out through routine maintenance, so ANU um, kicked them out without even knowing they were in, they were back in within a day. And so I think that we can learn from others. So rather than telling the board what could actually happen, I think it's learning from others that really adds the most value. David, I need to echo this. This is a huge opportunity and something I've written about extensively is uh, when we get breached for the most part, the first thing we do is can we get away with it and tell nobody? Whereas the threat actor community is one of the most sharing information rich communities out there. They do malware as a service, mailing lists as a service, botnet as a service. There is no, you know, as soon as they find a way to break in, who would like access to this? It'll cost you this and we'll share it with you. Yeah, as 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 they're very, they're very collegial. They're very collegial, aren't they? We're, absolutely, we're all victims here, but we won't share what happened. Yeah, we need to. I think legislation needs to change that you shouldn't get fined for a breach. You should get fined for not sharing exactly what happened. And people will say, "I'm not going to share because I might get breached." It's like you've been breached, and by the way, you need to fix it. And by the way, knowing every piece of technology you have in there is not going to make mean that I can or cannot break in. Yeah. A dedicated threat actor will find a way in. But if my experience was, um, okay, let me, a very short story. Uh, we had an event where an Australian bank some years ago uh, had been hit um, with uh, their internet banking was knocked offline by a DDoS attack. But the local press, your local press, who normally would like, you know, cut them a new head or something, was very complimentary because the communication they used was quite aggressive. Right. So the Internet banking was down. So a press release was issued. You know, the website was updated, the Facebook, Twitter, every communication was going on. Now, this, as, as this gentleman was talking about this, one of the banks from one of the ASEAN countries turned around, put his hand up and he said, so you're telling me your your website and your Internet banking infrastructure are, are different. 
And he went, well, yes, of course they are. I mean, internet banking is very secure and the website is about communication. And I would say 30% of the room just started writing notes and messaging people, mm. split those systems up. In this industry, we learn from others' mistakes, not from best practices. I waste my time telling you how to do it. If I tell you how someone else got broken into, you're going to change what you were doing. That you were. Uh, That's my story. So I really but very passionate about this, uh, mm -hmm. something we need to do more of. Yeah. We're all on the same side here, for goodness sake. And if Sun Tzu made a point, it's about information is power and we let the bad guys have all the power. That's why they're winning the war. Well, it's a good point, isn't it? That the victims need to be as at least as cooperative and collegial as the as the malicious actors themselves. Anna, have you ever been in a room with a CEO and a CIO post some sort of security incident, and that conversation um, began about well, we need to tell everybody immediately what's just happened and share all the details? Um, I've been very fortunate to have not been involved in a significant attack I've had me misses um, and what's really interesting David is you, you can plan for you can plan for an event yeah. and it never plays out the way you think it might um, and my example or the most relevant here is actually um, a situation that happened on the Sunday because it always happens on a weekend never in the, never a weekday yeah. um, and there was a report of a customer being able to see other customers data through a digital channel and I actually made the decision with the CEO to shut the digital channel down now it didn't end up being um, anything malicious but I felt um, confident in the decision that I was making at the time, it was a weekend, um, it wasn't during business hours. And so I think that the CEO having my back and then him communicating that to the board was really the right decision for us. It was protecting and maintaining the data of all of the customers in the event that was actually something more serious than, than what it eventuated to be. Sure. And this, we, we were talking about the other day again about the this ongoing theme, CIOs love hearing this, that that the CIO role is, is the succession path to, to the CEO. Do you think, do you think, that, the, <laughs> do you think that this, you know, this conversation we're having about CIOs, the CIOs have an opportunity to be even more, play an even more critical role within organisations. Do you think that this added responsibility is, is creating opportunities for the CIOs to even accelerate their path to, to, to being um, in a CRO, particularly for digital organisations where where cyber is, you know, so so critical. I do. I, I don't think it's tied to the cyber accountability. For me, the CIO now um, that IT is at the heart of every organisation is the real opportunity for a CIO to either keep looking down within the IT organisation and really focusing on, I suppose, emerging technologies and keeping the lights on, yeah. or to look up and out. And I think that the possibility here as a CIO is to be able to see the big picture, yeah. be able to really see and get clarity on the role that you play in delivering on the company strategy and being able to articulate to, that to people within your team, but also outside and across the business. And it's working with regulators, it's working with your auditors, it's having the relationships there to really help enact significant change across the business. That's the opportunity for CIOs. Yeah, yeah. What I, what I was kind of getting at, Simon, was sort of throwing back to your alluding to this being an arms race. And if it is, if it is an arms race, then effective CEOs in, in partnership with, with CIOs need to, need to operate with an almost sort of military-type vigilance, one might say. Or is that getting a little bit lofty? Oh, I don't know. Let's, let's turn it around. What's, what's the positive business outcome of cybersecurity through IT? 
yeah. is engendering trust in the organization. Yes. So we've created some research that we call the future of trust, um, which shows you that the outcome of trust is trust-enabled commerce, which means your customers are very trustworthy of you and keep coming back. But you've got uh, trusted ecosystems, your supply chain and trusted governance. You know exactly what you're looking at. Security is part of that, all based on a strong foundation of mature risk management. Uh, and then you really throw in things like ethics and responsibility and, of course, privacy in there. I think there's an opportunity for the CIO to right now, because of the digital first, to look at where the business can transform its business models through technology. And that would certainly put them on the right path towards uh, being able to become a CEO, because you've got to understand all the different machinations of the business units. From the cyber perspective, let's not appoint a CISO, let's appoint a chief trust officer that is focused on engendering trust with risk management, security, compliance, privacy, and, uh, and looking to uh, trust and gen enable commerce. That, that's, that would be a smart thing to do. Um, but absolutely, I, I, we, we did a, st a study a couple of years ago where something like 46% of CIOs thought they might be make it to CEO. Uh, we updated it a couple of years ago, and that's now like 78% because of the importance of digital. Uh, it, it is part of every business. And if the CIO doesn't, when looking at a new project, start off with, so what is the benefit to the business? And then what are the risks I need to manage? Then they shouldn't be in the job in the first place. Right? And you shouldn't be doing the project either, if those that's questions can't be answered. Very true. Yeah, you're singing from my, my hymn book, Simon. Ah. <laughs> yeah. So, Anna... Should the, C should the CIO be solely responsible for hiring the CISO or the chief trust officer or whatever, or, or, the, or the chief hunter or whatever term we might conjure up? And if they are responsible... David? Yeah. Hey. <laughs> and if they are responsible, what, what, sort of, what, what advice would we give CIOs in terms of hiring that person? So my position is, uh, yes, the CIO should be accountable for hiring them. Um, as a CIO, I would involve key stakeholders in the business in that recruitment process, such as the chief risk officer. And for me, it's really around looking for the right security leader for your business. Um, Claire, my co-author, has actually written a book herself called The Secure CIO, which actually walks through um, a CIO actually understanding what they need in a security leader. Now, she did that because she kept having people come to her in her business with this really long list of what they wanted in a security leader, um, and you can't find them. There's a skill shortage as it is, and on top of that, you're never going to find someone in market who ticks all of the requirements that you have in your business. Yeah. So it's really helping understand what your priorities are um, in terms of what you're looking for and focusing on those. Um, and so my example at Unisuper is that I really needed a security leader that could not just lead the team, but really build that relationship with the board. Yes. The board hadn't heard about cyber before I started there in 2017. And so I had to have someone that was starting the conversation and really helping them become more comfortable with it rather than someone who is, he is actually very technical in nature, the person in the role, but yeah. he can actually communicate to the board and effectively to the, the executive team in very plain language and business context. Sure. What are your thoughts on that, Simon? No, I think you know, making the connection. So first off, anybody who's running security needs to be able to uh, work with a whole bunch of people across the organization. So those key stakeholders need to be involved because I, I think communication is one of the biggest challenges in this part of the business. 
And if you can't communicate to those other business leaders in a way that they want it to be, so communication is a two-way street. I can say something, but if you're not hearing what I'm trying, the message I'm trying to deliver, and you take away a, deliver, a different message, that's failure. Yeah. So I, I think a communicator as much as anything. Like I said, I, I, I kind of like the idea that the role should sit outside the CIO environment, unless it's a really smart CIO. But uh, so you need to have people who are going to you know, be able to address those components. But you know, Australia is a, a market of lots of small organizations. So I, I don't know, I don't know what, there's a growing trend towards a CISO as a service. Now, you, can't, you can never actually outsource the absolute risk, but the process you can. Is that something that uh, you would uh, advocate? I do. I, I really would. And I think that's, um, once again, for the smaller organisations. I think that it's, um, you talked before about us learning from each other mm. and how valuable that can be. I think that having that offered as a service and helping people understand how to build a strategy yeah. and then how to actually build a roadmap around that and how to be able to measure it is a really, really critical role that you don't need to have someone sitting within your organisation that can actually perform that and do that. You can actually get help to get those deliverables achieved. Yeah, It's, it's funny you use the term strategy. I've yet to really come across an organisation that has a strategy uh, other than trying to knit together all the tools that they've inherited. Yes. Well, guys, very, a very timely, interesting, useful conversation for our audience. Thank you so much for joining us on the CIO Show. We look forward to having you back on again very soon. Thanks, David. Thanks, Simon. Thank you, both. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. It's now become almost a cliche to state cloud computing isn't always the cheapest option compared with on-premise or some hybrid configuration. In the next episode, we'll be talking to CIOs and analysts about how to ensure you're maximizing the value of your cloud service agreements by choosing the best providers for different tasks and understanding the fine print. Even more importantly, we'll also discuss how CIOs can best train and equip their teams to be more cloud ready and cloud savvy. We hope you can join us.